0: Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my podcast about big ideas and other problems. We're doing something a little different today that I'm very excited about. We have a special episode with an interview by platformer editor and Verge co-conspirator Casey Newton. Hey, Casey.
1: (laughs) Hey, Nilay. Thanks for letting me crash your podcast.
0: So, Casey, you interviewed Nick Clegg, who is the VP of Global Affairs at Facebook. He's a former member of the UK Parliament and deputy prime minister. That's a lot of titles, a lot of history. How did your interview with Nick come about?
1: So this morning, Clegg posted a 5,000-word op-ed on Medium where he sets about trying to take apart the biggest criticisms that get leveled at Facebook, everything from it's too polarizing, it's spreading misinformation and hate speech, uh, you know, and, and it's just sort of showing people terrible things and and fraying the fabric of society. And so he goes through those arguments, pushes back against them, and then unveils some changes Facebook is making to give you as a user more control over things there's going to be a new uh feed slider that will let you decide if you want to see your feed in reverse chronological order for example or you can create a new feed called favorites that just shows you your very favorite people and pages on facebook so it's kind of a philosophical shift for the company trying to get away from pure algorithms crafted in secret in menlo park to something that you and i have more control over
0: that is a big shift but it also feels like it's recharacterizing some of the controls that are already there. That's
1: right. This is putting a fresh coat of paint on some things that they have done before, but they are signaling that there are going to be more of these things to come. I think they've gotten the message that no one trusts the algorithms that they make. And so one thing they can do about that is letting you get rid of the algorithms to the extent that you want to.
0: As I listen to the conversation, one question I, I really wanted to ask you to kind of frame it and contextualize it is that Facebook is very big and you're going to listen to the conversation between you and Nick that kind of touches on this directly. Facebook's product doesn't express Facebook's corporate values. It expresses a a different kind of value. Maybe it's neutrality, maybe it's connecting people, but there's a tension there that is a function of Facebook's size, right? Facebook can't just be one thing for a small group of people. It has to be everything for everyone.
1: That's right. Like most digital media publications just kind of get to, to pick a lane and have a fully developed worldview and pick and choose what people see based on that. That's not what Facebook is. Facebook is designed to be a free and open marketplace for all people. That's the business. That's the whole idea. And it does lash them to this kind of strained neutrality, which uh, causes them to contort themselves in, in all sorts of strange ways sometimes. But one of the things that you know we explore in this talk is the way that Facebook has been dragged away from that neutrality, you know, putting in these information centers into the newsfeed that will tell you actual true facts about climate change and COVID-19 and, and how to vote. So this is, to me, one of the more interesting changes that Facebook is embarking on is this move away from, you know, a strict uh, view that, you know, whatever people say on Facebook is true.
0: Okay. Platformers Casey Newton with Nick Clegg, VP of Global Affairs at Facebook. Here we go.
1: Well, Nick Clegg, welcome to Decoder.
2: It's great to be great to be with
1: you. <laughs> so, you've just published a five thousand word essay that pushes back on a lot of recent criticism of Facebook and makes some news about what the company is doing in response. Uh, tell me about the origin of this piece.
2: Well, look, I've, I've been—I'm I'm not a technologist or an engineer by by background. Uh, I'm a—I'm I'm a sort of refugee from politics, from twenty years in politics, and and yet I've been at Facebook now for for a couple of years and so as a relative newcomer i've been observing the debate particularly but not only in the us the debate about uh, about the role of social media in society in some of the most you know, complex issues we have uh, in, in in politics, in culture, in, in a lot of the sort of social dynamics um, going on right now. And th- this was certainly not designed to simply act as a sort of receptacle for, for all the counter-arguments. I, I'm, what I'm trying to do, and some people may believe I've succeeded, others no doubt will say that I haven't, but I've tried to engage sincerely and as, and as thoughtfully as I can with many of the criticisms, precisely because I sometimes worry that the dialogue between Silicon Valley and the critics of Silicon Valley is becoming a bit of a kind of shouting match where people are just kind of yelling alternative views of the same facts and not really listening to each other. It's it's a genuine attempt to try and grapple with them. And, And the more I thought about this, I thought one of the things that was underlying a lot of the legitimate concern about social media in particular is given that social media's early promise was all about empowerment, empowering individuals to have a voice they didn't have before, empowering communities to mobilise in a way that they didn't have before, empowering people to co- to connect with families and friends in a way that they had before. And in Facebook's case, doing also all that on such a huge scale and everybody, you know, because it's paid for by ads, doing so for free. I-, I thought one of the really key issues to look into was... So, right, kind of who really is in charge? Is the user in charge or is the system in charge? And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of legitimate concern these days that somehow people's choices are not sovereign. They're not in the driving seat. That somehow in the boiler room, the algorithmic boiler room, all sorts of choices are being made and some of them might be nefarious choices. They're not transparent enough. And so that's why I really honed in on this piece But how can we lift the veil a bit you know, you know. open the bonnet, look into the boiler room, be more transparent about how the systems work, and crucially, push forward with a renewed attempt at giving users meaningful controls, where in effect they can, in some instances, override the algorithm, override the ranking systems that are made available to them, and make their own choices.
1: And this is, you know, gets into sort of what is the, the news that, that you are making here. And I think to your point, there has been a, a huge amount of concern about what algorithms are doing in the background. Most of us are, well, we're not uh, math majors or computer science majors. And so there is some sort of uh, fear and, and uncertainty about what's going on in the background. And so one of the things that Facebook is now doing is giving us some new ways to change up what, what we see in the newsfeed. So so what are some of these new controls?
2: Yeah, so some of the controls are old. I mean, we've had them for a while, but we're just going to make them a lot more prominent. So, for instance, you, you could always switch to a chronological feed, uh, but candidly, it, it wasn't easy for people to find. So we're now going to have a, a sort of feed filter bar. At, when you scroll to the top of your feed, it'll it'll be there. Uh, it'll always be there. And you can toggle between the, the, the feed as it currently exists to have it uh, chronologically ordered or crucially, and this is new, so that you can create actually your own new feed of favorites, a favorite sort of, you know, favorite uh, groups, friends, posts, and so on. And you'll be able to create, curate that if you like for yourself and toggle between those three, the feed as it is, the chronological feed and your new favorites feed. In a, in a much, much more effortless way. It'll be much more visible. It'll be visible there when you scroll to the top of your, your feed. There are other new controls as well, which, um, which I'm announcing this week. Uh, you'll be able to curate much more with much greater granularity than before. Who can comment? On your, on your posts, um, and that is something which um, you know wasn 't available before, and we 're also going to extend something which has existed for ads for instance, and for connected uh, content, uh, namely why am I seeing this so you can go to the three dots and you can see why am I seeing this ad we 're now going to extend that to suggested content content so when you know when something is suggested to you that that cooking video you can you can go on the three dots and you can see uh, why uh, why you 're seeing that so I think collectively, it's a start. I'm not, that, I'm not going to pretend that those changes in and of themselves will, will lift all the uh, questions that people have about how social media operates and how they interact with Facebook. But I do feel that they are, a signi- they are significant steps in, in a better direction, putting users more in charge, being more open and transparent about things. And we will follow up with a number of additional steps, greater transparency, greater controls in, in the months to come.
1: And is that also a suggestion that maybe this is the beginning of uh, of uh, this feed filter bar that you are introducing? That that might have more filters that come to it over time. Like, is the idea that users will have sort of more and more control over how the the stuff they see is ranked?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, look, in an, in an ideal world, you just want to push ever more forcefully in a, in the direction where people can personalize their feeds, and you know, if people want to see more or see less of particular, you know, forms of content uh, from particular pages or groups. I, you know, there is also conceptually, at least, the possibility of, of exploring whether people can or can't, if you like, turn the dial up or down on particular classes of content. That's exactly the kind of work that we want to do. And now exactly how granular, exactly which dials apply to which kinds of content, all of that still needs to be filled in. But that is very much the direction we're going in.
1: So the the conventional wisdom about how the feed works now, I think for for a lot of folks, and certainly of the folks who are most critical of Facebook, is that it uh, rewards the most uh, polarizing and outrageous content. And this is something that you really – Take on in this piece and and push back against. I suspect if there's one sentence in your piece that the, the most people will take issue with, it's when you write Facebook's systems are not designed to reward provocative content. Uh, you know, at the same time, when we look at lists of pages that get the most engagement, it does tend to be pages that seem to be pushing really polarizing content. So, so how do you reconcile this at Facebook?
2: Well, I mean, firstly, I, I of course, accept that we need to just provide more and more data and more evidence about, you know, what is the specific content that is popular on newsfeed. And and of course, although Facebook's critics often talk about sensational content dominating newsfeed, of course, we want to show, as I think we can, uh, that that, that many of the most popular posts on newsfeed are lighthearted. They're feel-good stories. We want to show people that the overwhelming majority of the posts people see on newsfeed are about pets, babies, vacations, and, and similar, and not, not incendiary topic. In fact, I think on Monday, the, the, the most, one of the most popular posts, I think, in, in, uh, in the US was of, of, a, of a mother bear with some three or four baby cubs uh, crossing a road. I saw it myself. It's lovely. I strongly recommend you look at it. And, and I think we can and we will do more to, to, to substantiate that. But beyond that, I do think, and I do try to grapple with this as, as thoroughly as, as, as you know as is possible in a, in a five thousand word piece. Firstly, the signals that that are used in the ranking pro uh, you know process are far more complex, are far more sophisticated, and have far more checks and balances in it that are implied by this sort of cardboard cutout caricature that somehow we're just spoon feeding people incendiary, sensational stuff. It, it, it really, and, and I won't, I mean, happy to go into the details if you like, but there are thousands of signals are used, literally from the device that you use to the groups that you're you know, members of and so on. We use survey evidence. We're using more and more survey evidence. We'll be doing more of that in the future as well to ask people what they find most meaningful. Uh, There's been a big shift in recent years, anyway, to reward content that is more meaningful, your connections with your families and friends, rather than stuff that is that is just you know brute, sort of crudely engaging, you know, pages from politicians and personalities and celebrities and sports pages and so on. So that shift has already been underway. Um, But in terms of incentives. This is the bit that that I, I, you know, no doubt Facebook um, has, has, you know, maybe we have not been articulate enough in this. But firstly, the people who pay our lunch don't like their content next to incendiary, unpleasant uh, material. Uh, And and if you needed any further proof of that, this last summer, a number of, you know, major advertisers boycotted Facebook because they felt we weren't doing enough on hate speech. we're, We're getting much, much better at reducing the prevalence of hate speech that, you know, the prevalence of hate speech is now down to, what, zero point zero seven zero point zero eight percent of of content on Facebook. Uh, so every, what, you know, every 10,000 pieces of content you see, seven or eight might be, I wish it was down to zero. I don't think we'll ever get it down to zero. So we have a massive incentive to do that. But also, if you think about it, if you're building a product which you want to survive for the long term, where you want people in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years to still be using these products... There's really no incentive for the company to give people a, the kind of sugar rush of kind of artificially polarizing uh, content, uh, to, which might keep them on on you know on board for ten or twenty minutes extra. Now we we want to solve for ten or twenty years, not for twenty or ten or twenty extra minutes. And so I don't think our incentives are pointed in the direction that many people assume. That all being said, it is of course true. It's 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 just I mean. You know any any sub editor of a newspaper will tell you that you know that 's why it 's why tabloids have have used striking imagery and 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 you know cage rattling language on their front pages since its time immemorial there are there are of course there are emotions of fear of anger of jealousy of rage which of course provoke emotional uh, emotional responses they 've done so in all media in all time and so of course of course emotive content. Provokes an emotive, you know, reaction amongst people. We we can't we can't reprogram human nature, and we don't want to deny that. Which is why our tangled tool actually elaborates on that and shows how things are being engaged. But as you know, there is a world of difference between that which is most engaged with in other words where comments and shares are most you know most the most common and actually the content that most people see and that's quite quite different and actually if you look at what most human beings see if you look at eyeballs rather than comments and shares you get a quite different picture and the final point i would make is i think it really is i read you know almost on a daily basis words like a wash a drowning in all these euphemisms you know let's let's just keep this in perspective. I mean, political content, if you read a lot of political commentary, you'd think that the only thing people go to Facebook for is not for babies, barbecues, and bar mitzvahs, but for politics. In fact, politics is a minority of the content. it's about six percent of the total content on Facebook. So I guess my plea is, yes, we on Facebook need to be more open about about all these different subtleties, but equally, I think people who comment on it sh- should keep some sense of perspective as well about what normal human beings in the normal world actually do when they go on Facebook.
1: So, so there's a, a tension in, in that the, that I want to ask about. In your essay and in, in this discussion, you've talked about you know your belief, Facebook's belief, that people should have a lot of agency over what they see. They should get to choose who they want to hear from, which articles they want to read, which friends they want to hear from. At the same time, Facebook has taken steps to reduce the default amount of political content in the feed, to stop recommending political and civic groups, and really sort of exercising you know what some might call editorial judgment over over at least what the, the defaults are. so are those two ideas at odds? Is that just a attention that you have to manage?
2: I think it is attention and, and as I say in the piece, you know, waxing lyrical about promoting individual agency, that's the easy bit. I mean you know that's mother and apple pie. I actually think also identifying harmful content and keeping it off the, the, the internet that's, that's challenging, but we're getting better at it and we, you know and it's doable. The bit that is really, really tough because it's just the subject of so much, so many differences of opinion, is what is the collective good? What constitutes the collective good? And who should determine that? And how should it be reflected on social media, which in many ways has become the public square for a lot of these things? And of course, that's particularly acute, or has been in recent years in the US, where there just isn't a ready-made, oven-baked consensus on what constitutes good content. You know, what for what for one school of thought is bad and unacceptable content is for another school of thought, you know, the right to free expression. And we're caught in the, in the middle of that. We have heavy responsibilities to try and draw the lines in the right place. We do that as deliberately and deliberatively as we possibly can with academics and experts. We publish all of that quite openly. We enshrine that in our community standards. But at the end of the day, at the End of the day, I do think it's a, it's a, you know it's something which I know Mark Zuckerberg feels very strongly himself. It's not you know it's not great to have private companies basically adjudicating on what are societal and in the end quintessentially political judgments. you are making pol- basically you are making judgments about where the collective good lies. And whilst it's 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 difficult, I, I do think we need to move gradually. And when I say we, I mean both the private sector and, and the, the politicians and the legislators who are democratically accountable to the, to the people, I do think we all sort of collectively need to be, move beyond admiring this, this problem or shouting this problem and trying to promulgate rules which enjoy wider consensus. Um, because it, in the end, I don't think anyone is going to accept, and why should they, is ever, is ever going to accept the, 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 the rules as constituted by a private company itself.
1: So one of the ways that Facebook would talk about this three or four years ago was that there was a a range of subjects about which it would say, well, we don't want to be Arbiters of truth—that that is not for for Facebook to decide, for, for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. But in recent years, the company uh, has introduced what it calls information centers. It's offered really high quality information about elections, COVID nineteen. I think climate change is the most recent one. R- really, sort of you know using its editorial discretion as a private company to say we think this information is really good and you should see it. So I'm curious, what what explains that change? Is the com- the company getting more comfortable? taking what looked to me like editorial stances?
2: The only distinction I'd make, Casey, is it's not so much that Facebook is is using its own editorial judgment. What we are recognizing is that Facebook just has exceptional reach. It is a means by which you can reach an exceptionally large number of people in a very, very direct way. And so we want to make that, that means, if you like, available to those who do legitimately promulgate and, if you like, editorialise authoritative information. So whether it's the CDC and the WHO on, on COVID, whether it is, you know, the, 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 the UN-backed uh, panel of international scientists on climate science, uh, whether it is the public authorities running, you know, our elections. So it's, it's not that we are seeking to Supplement their role as the source of editorially authoritative information. What we're making ourselves available for is to then serve as the means by which that can reach a lot of people in a in a in a in a very direct way. And and I yeah I, I guess what has clearly happened is that I mean the pandemic is the most dramatic uh, example. Uh, but I think you know the U.S. elections were another one, just given quite how polarized. The, 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 you know, the, the politics leading up to the US elections were last November. I, I just think the company is recognising that there are these societal issues which are all-encompassing and where there are institutions and organisations and experts and authorities who have, you know, pretty unimpeachable credibility, and we would like to connect the two. You know, we'd like to connect people with that. They, you know, people can choose to listen to it or not. As, as you know, on the COVID Information Hub, I think... Over two billion people accessed it, and I think over six hundred million people double clicked on to you know to find more information on COVID, and on the voter information hub. It you know it it um, it appears to have helped over four and a half million Americans to register to vote who otherwise wouldn't. So so I would draw this distinction between the words you used of editorializing, which I think is we're not we're not trying to su- we're not trying to replace the CDC and the WHO. We're not trying to su- we're not trying to replace the climate change scientists who know their business in a way that Facebook does not. Right.
1: I, I mean, the thing that I appreciate about these moves is, you know, in, in all of the discussion around misinformation, I think there is an idea that if social networks would simply remove all of the bad posts, we'd be fine. But I think in reality, you have to show people good posts, too. Uh, so to me, like those kinds of information centers are a, a step in that direction.
2: Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's it's two sides of the same coin. Of course, you need to bear down on misinformation. B- but you're, you're never you're never going to you're never going to create a healthy information ecosystem on really difficult issues like public health and the pandemic, simply by playing whack-a-mole on on, on misinformation, you've got to. I mean, in, in my I would argue, actually, in many respects, what you proactively do to empower people with the right information is as important, if not more important, than that which you remove or demote. And candidly, on misinformation, I mean, you know, the pandemic is a classic example. We have right now. We have governments saying that they do or don't like that vaccine. You know, I just read overnight that Canada has paused the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for people under the age of 55. And suddenly you go, wow, is that something you know? And then people pass comment on the Chinese vaccine and the Sputnik vaccine. And then people want to, of course, share on social media their personal experiences. My arm is sore, I've got a headache or whatever. We cannot, and nor should we, cleanse the internet of legitimate debate. And in fact, people expressing their opinions about the vaccines is a really important Iterative process by which people become comfortable with, with with taking the vaccine themselves. You don't you don't you don't tackle vaccine hesitancy by simply trying to you know eliminate all debate. So we, we, we you know you're quite right. It, these things go hand in glove. It, it's both the information that you don't allow or you demote, but it's also crucially the information that you promote in a more proactive way, so that people have active, access to authoritative information in, 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 hopefully, the most credible form that it can be delivered to them. You're listening to a
0: special episode of Decoder with Casey Newton and Facebook's Nick Clegg. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll hear Casey ask Nick about his thoughts on whether polarization in society is being accelerated
3: on Facebook. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: We're back with a special episode of Decoder with Casey Newton talking to Nick Clegg, VP of Global Affairs at Facebook.
1: So let's turn to another really important subject that you write about uh, in this piece, which is polarization. Uh, I think a lot of folks I talk to take for granted the idea that social networks accelerate what researchers call negative affective polarization, which is just basically the degree to which one group dislikes another. Uh, But as you point out in the piece, and and I have done some writing on, the the research here, uh, while limited, is mixed. But I do think it strongly suggests that polarization at least has many consequences causes, and and some of those do predate the existence of social networks. At the same time, I think all of us have had the experience of getting on Facebook and finding ourselves in a fight over politics or observing one among friends and family. And we read the comments and everyone digs in their heels and it ends when they all unfriend each other or block each other. And so what I want to know is, do you feel that those moments just aren't collectively as powerful as they might feel to us individually? Or or is there something else going on uh, that that explains Facebook's case that it is not uh, a polarizing force?
2: Look, because as you quite rightly said, Casey, this is now such a—it's like almost a given. I I just hear people literally just make throwaway remarks. Well, of course, social media is the is the principal reason for. I mean, it's just become it's become like it's become a sort of settled sediment layer in the narratives around. So I, I, you know, I believe you me. I'm trying to tread really carefully here because when you when you interrupt people's um, uh, narratives, repeat with gusto, folk don't like it. And that's why I very deliberately in the piece not cited anything that Facebook itself has generated. Though, of course, we do research, we commission research. This is all third-party research. And I choose my words very carefully. You know, I say that the results of that research, that independent academic research, is mixed. It really is very mixed. And I think what we, in answer to your question, I think the reason perhaps why there is this dissonance now between the academic and independent research, which really doesn't suggest that social media is the primary driver of polarisation, after all, and the assumptions. I think there's a number of reasons, but it's partly one of geography. I mean, candidly, a lot of the debate is generated by people using social media amongst the coastal policy and media elites in the US. But, you know, let's remember, nine out of 10... Facebook users are outside the US, and they have a completely different experience. They live a completely different world, and the and the Pew study in two thousand nineteen, which is really worth looking at for those who are interested, you know, looked at uh, people using social media in in a number of countries, not least a number of countries in the developing world, and there they found overwhelming evidence that, if you, that for them, for millions, perhaps billions of people in those countries, who were not living through this, you know, peculiar history, Political time in the U.S. They actually were using social media to experience people of different uh, communities, different countries, different religions, different viewpoints uh, on a really significant scale. I think there's, so. There's geography. I think there's time. We just need to remember. You just need to look at the evidence for which there is considerable evidence, and the and, the St- and Stanford research published last year looked at that. They looked at nine countries over 40 years and found that in many of those countries, polarization preceded the advent of the social media. And in many other countries, polarization was flat or actually declined, even as the the, the use of social media uh, increased. So I think there's an issue of geography. <laughs> there's an issue of time where we're kind of candidly losing a little bit of sense of a perspective. And then I think there is just an issue of Perhaps looking at social media in a way that is divorced from the other parts of the media ecosystem, and, and i 've to my mind at least the study that was published uh, just a few months ago by the um, i think it 's called, called the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, Harvard University uh, last year, and they looked specifically at election related disinformation to do with mail in ballots because you know there was all this stuff circulating about mail in ballots where you know a lot of folk were trying to sort of tarnish the 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 integrity of using mail in ballots and they you know they showed pretty comprehensively that that was primarily delivered driven by elite and mass and mass media not least cable news and that social media only played a secondary role so i think there's an issue of it's a, it's a, we need perspective on geography on time and on outlet and i think when you do that you you, you of course, listen, I don't want to swing the other way. I don't want to somehow pretend that social media does not play a part in all of this. Of course it does. But I, I do hope I can make a contribution in saying, look, if we step back a bit, we're starting to reduce almost, I think, simplistically some quite complex forces that are driving cultural, socioeconomic and political polarisation in our society to just one form of communication.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I, I think that that's fair. I'll also tell you my fear, though, which is that the best data about this subject, or a lot of it, is at Facebook. And I think there's a good question about whether Facebook even really has the incentive to dig too deeply into this. We know that when it has shared data with researchers in the past, it's, it's you know caused privacy issues. Cambridge Analytica you know essentially began that way. And yet this feels really, really important to me. So I'm just wondering, what are the internal discussions about, about research? Does the company feel like it, it maybe uh, owes us more on that front? And is that something it's prepared to
2: take on? Yes, it does. Uh, And I I personally feel really strongly about this. Uh, um, I mean, look, of, of course, Cambridge Analytica, it's often forgotten, you know, was started by an academic legitimately accessing data and then illegitimately flogging that data onto a... To 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 Cambridge Analytica, and so of course that 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 rocked this company down to you know right down to its foundations, and so of course that has that you know that has led to a slightly rocky path um, in terms of creating a channel of by which Facebook can provide research to the data. But I I strongly agree with you, Casey, that you, th- these are issues which are not only important to Facebook they're important to, they're societally important. I just don't think we're going to make progress unless we have more data, more research, independently vetted, so that we can have a a kind of mature and and, and evidence-based debate. Look, I do think we're getting a lot better. Uh, You know, the time I've been here, you know, I really believe we're starting to shift the dial. Last year, we provided we provided funding to, I think, over 40 academic institutions around, around the world looking at misinfa- misinformation and polarization. We've helped launch this very significant research project into the use of social media in the run up to the US elections last year. Hopefully those researchers will start providing the fruits of their uh, research uh, during the, I think the summer of this year. We've, we've hand- made available to them unprecedented amounts of, of data, there are always going to be pinch points where we feel that researchers are, in effect, scraping data where we have to take action. candidly, we're legally and duty bound, not least under our FTC order, to do so. I hope we can handle those instances in a in a kind of grown up way, whilst at the same time continuing to to, to provide data in the way that you describe. I would really hope, Casey, that if you and I were to have this conversation in in a year or so you and I be able to point to to, to data which emanates from Facebook, but has been freely and independently analyzed by academics in a way that has not been the case in, in recent years.
1: Let's do that. I'm going to mark my calendar so that we can do that. And another point in your essay that I think is worth talking about is you acknowledge something that I that I also think gets lost in some of the discussions that we have on these subjects, which is that the internet is bigger than four companies. And in the in the context of you know writing about you know sort of bad content elsewhere, you write consider the presence of bad and polarizing content on private messaging apps, iMessage, Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, used by billions of people around the world. Facebook, of course, owns WhatsApp, but not those others. Where do you think Think that uh, sort of private messaging uh, and maybe encrypted messaging fits into some of these conversations that that we're having.
2: Well, I mean, the, the point I was making was that, that for those who believe it's and I, you know, of course, I'm caricaturing now just for brevity's sake. But for those who sort of say it's all the algorithms' fault, it's all it's all the, the system's fault, and and and, we, and us human beings are just like puppets on a string. We're being we're being manipulated. I, I just want I just thought it was worth in passing pointing to the fact that actually billions of people use messaging apps as their primary form of communication which is algorithm free and yet it still is it's still a, a a route a conduit by which unpleasant polarizing hateful content is is is, is spread I, I i do think that you know we we've, we've seen this on our own surfaces you in very general terms you're seeing this big shift from people congregating communicating connecting with each other in in open spaces instagram and facebook and doing so increasingly in more you know intimate settings messaging apps i think the vast majority i think well over 90% of you know whatsapp messages i need to check this but are still one to one messages it, it's it, and it's you know mark zuckerberg has talked in the past about the sort of comparing them to the public square on the one hand and the kind of living room on the other i do think people are are increasingly expecting uh, as sort of just Table stakes, just as def- default entitlement to, to be able to communicate with others in a private and secure way through messaging, and I and I think that that does then pose uh, issues uh, with regulators and policymakers. Uh, yes, partly perhaps about the content in terms of you know standards of of, of speech, hateful speech, and so on. But actually, the, the more harder edged side of that is the debate around law enforcement and. Um, just the the impact that enforcement has on traditional forms of content driven law enforcement and that's something that companies like Facebook you know we work tirelessly with law enforcement to demonstrate that there are ways in which we can still enhance safety even if we don't and nobody else has access to the to message content but it's definitely you know you can see this debate in India you can see it in the UK. You can see it in, in uh, you know, the FBI director has, has recently talked about this publicly. I think that is, a, that is a running theme. And we need to play a responsible role in striking the right balance between, I mean, it's an age old debate, isn't it? This, this balance between privacy and security. It's, you know, from the days that, that letters were being steamed open, <laughs> um, that this has always been a balance that we've had to try and strike in the right way in, in democratic societies.
1: I want to go back to a, a point you raised earlier about one of the biggest debates that I think we're having around social networks, which is who who deserves to have a platform? And when somebody is removed from the platform, who gets to decide? Uh, you write, should a private company be intervening to shape the ideas that flow across its systems above and beyond the prevention of serious harms? T- to my mind, the answer is is clearly yes. Uh, I think that companies have that right. I don't even know that companies would work Work if they were not able to go beyond, you know, simply removing I- illegal content. So I wanted to press you a bit on that point. Is that really uh, the kind of call that, or, or the right to make that call? Is that something that Facebook would really want to give up?
2: No, so I, I, I agree with you. Of course, it, it, it's part and parcel, isn't it, of, of, of running a service that people voluntarily use. We are entitled to say you use our services, but if you do, there are certain rules of the game, and if you transgress them, if you do that most egregiously, you won't be welcome in using them again. I think, candidly, where it gets just as a matter of first principle, a lot more tricky is is when we, as a private company, make those adjudications about people who are, you know, democratically elected. Leaders or leaders of of governments, and we obviously the indefinite suspension of Donald Trump's page is the most obvious example of that. But just over the last few days, we've suspended President Maduro his his use of his um, page for for thirty days, and that is really tricky. And, and you know, when you have when you have in response to the Trump suspension, when you have everyone from the president of Mexico to Bernie Sanders saying that they're worried about the precedent that sets, I kind of think it's 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 reasonable for all us to acknowledge that we're that we're now entering into pretty tricky territory and 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 i guess the thing i would say to those people who said you know because there are a lot of people who said when we when when we took that action against trump oh you should have done this years ago as if it was just an easy straightforward decision to just suspend the elected president of the united states you know, the most powerful democracy on the surface of the planet. It is not easy. That is not an easy decision. And I would be very, very worried if companies, and I say this as an ex politician as much as now an executive of Facebook, I would be exceptionally worried if private companies in Silicon Valley just took a trigger happy approach to that kind of thing, because that seems to me to be really blurring the boundaries between democratic principles and, and, and private prerogatives. And so that's, of course, one of the reasons why we have referred that case to the Oversight Board. I think they're busy looking at it now. I, I hope, I mean, in fact, I think they have to under the rules of the Oversight Board, they have to, you know, come out with a pronouncement on, on whether they think we took the right decision and how we should move forward, because we've asked them for wider guidance beyond the Trump case on how we should treat these issues and what happens when you have uh, political leaders and where we want to take action against them. Um, I, I hope they're going to pronounce fairly shortly. But, but we're doing that because we realise that, you know, this is a power we can wield But it's a power which must, you know, must and should and can only be wielded in a way that is proportionate, careful, thoughtful and accountable.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've been somebody who has been supportive of the oversight board because the the status quo before the oversight board was that ultimately Mark Zuckerberg would just make every hard call, which, you know, is not a role that I think that he wanted or that, you know, many people thought was was ideal. You know, at the same time, there is now this other board, which is not super accountable to anybody that is going to be making this very consequential decision. I actually think we're going to see in the next few days. They're probably going to issue a ruling on Trump is what I have been. Uh, led to understand
2: there you go they're they're, they're so independent casey that you (laughs) knew that before i did i'm I'm, 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 I'm just gonna scribble a quick note to my (laughs) team
1: yeah so look out for that but i i just wonder like so you know this board has been stocked with people who are big you know speech advocates they have overturned most of the the decisions that you've referred to them so far there's a lot of speculation that they are going to overturn this one what will it mean for facebook if the board restores donald trump
2: well, so technically and narrowly, if they say Facebook, thou shalt restore Donald Trump, then that is what we will do because we have to because we're duty bound to do so. We've been very, very clear at the outset that the Oversight Board is not only independent, but its content-specific um, adjudications are binding on us. Beyond that, as I said, we uh, and I actually look. I, I know, of course, that the decision they make about Trump will grab all quite rightly the headlines, but. I actually hope that actually their wider guidance on what we should do going forward in analogous, similar cases will be as if, you know, if, if not um, more more significant. Because, we you know, we're trying to grapple with where, you know, where we should where we should intrude in what are otherwise quintessentially political uh, choices. And we're anxious for their guidance. And on those that guidance, that's that's guidance. Those, those will be recommendations. And we will then we will then cogitate on those, on that guidance ourselves and then provide our own response over a period of time. But in terms of the specific up or down decision, that is something, you know, assuming that they're going to be clear one way or another, where we will have to uh, abide by their decision. And it doesn't mean, of course, that our rules, I mean, our rules will then, I mean, our rules in terms of violations, strikes and all the rest of it, they 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 will remain in place. But yeah, but I mean, our hands quite deliberately and explicitly are tied as far as specific individual content decisions that they make are concerned.
1: Uh, Let let me ask you one final question. You you write about how Facebook is rethinking about how it can use ranking changes, some of the other tools that we've discussed to ensure that it has a positive impact on society. A lot of folks I know, I think, have given up on the idea that Facebook can have a positive impact on society. What I want to know is, what things can Facebook do that would make you believe, that would make Facebook believe, or that would make the world believe that it's having a positive impact on society? How would you measure that? How would you know it if
2: you saw it? Well, look, I don't want to sound glib, but I kind of think we see it all the time. I mean, why would 3 billion people in the world freely choose to use these services if it was bad for them? I mean, it... Of course, there are bad actors who try to use any form of communication and, you know, have done so from time immemorial, from radio to television to letters to emails. And we need to go after them. We need to kick them off where we can. We need to make our systems better and so on. But I do, you know, it's the point I made earlier. I just do hope even as we grapple with the minority of of, of people trying to propagate bad content, we remember that the vast, vast, vast majority of, you know, People use Facebook for positive, sometimes playful, innocent, meaningful, joyful reasons or just just downright useful reasons. Why are millions and millions of small businesses using Facebook to reach customers in a way that they never could before? Isn't it remarkable? I think it's a great democratizing thing, economically speaking, that small businesses now have access to tools on Facebook to reach their customers in a way that only big corporates with big, fat marketing budgets used to in the past. I think it's wonderful that whether you're a student in Guatemala or a sheep shear in the outback in Australia or a fancy, well-paid lawyer in, 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 in New York, you can use Instagram and Facebook on exactly the same basis. I think that's an extraordinarily equitable thing. So, look, so I for me, and I realise this might be an unfashionable thing to say to some, it is, to me, self-evident that Facebook is being used in in really positive, uh, creative, uh, and and, and enriching ways. What I equally, however, acknowledge is that not only are there lots of legitimate concerns, we need to do more to lift the veil on how the system works, to give people more controls. What I set out in this piece is just a start on a renewed journey where Facebook really wants to kind of put people more in charge so they can in effect create and curate their own their, their own news, news feed. And, and we will make a number of announcements in the coming months, greater transparency on how we use survey evidence, how we demote what signals we, we use, what more controls over content we can give to people. And look, I hope, I hope over time, that as this pendulum has swung so dramatically from the tech utopianism and the tech euphoria of the past, to what is now, in some cases, at least an almost hysterical tech pessimism. And neither extremes, I think, are right. I mean, it's always somewhere in the middle. I hope that that pendulum can come to rest and that one of the ingredients in, in, in creating a kind of a more a more kind of sustainable way forward is that users feel that they're more, more in charge. And, and, that's, and that's the spirit in which I've written this piece. Very good. Well, Nick Clegg, thanks for coming by. Thank you, Casey. Thanks very much.
0: So Casey, that was a great conversation. What's your big picture takeaway on how Facebook is positioning itself? To me, that last question
1: is the most important one. How are we going to... Decide whether we think Facebook on net is a good thing for the world, whether social networks, whether any product like this that is driven by recommendations, algorithms, big data can actually improve society rather than tear it apart. And I think you hear that the company is still fumbling for an explanation toward that. You know, other companies just kind of make the case for themselves. Even if you think Amazon's labor practices are terrible, you probably like Amazon Prime. You might have questions about Apple's App Store policy but gosh, you love your iPhone. Facebook doesn't have that. And so it's always in a position of trying to fight for public reputation uh, and, and often finds itself in a position where it's hard to win that battle. So I think they've just got to figure out how can they make it self-evident for f- that Facebook is good for the world if in fact it is.
0: Yeah, and to me, I keep coming back to the question of are they too big to have a point of view, to take a stand and say, this is what we are and this is what we're going to be at a scale that demands that everyone will always want them to be everything. And that is, to me is it will forever be the question that sort of guides as you call them, their contortions uh, as they talk about how they moderate
1: Yeah, I mean, the original idea of Facebook was that we would bring the world closer together and the world would just get better as a natural consequence of that. And now I think folks have real questions about that. And it it, it is odd that there aren't more examples of like big groups coming together on Facebook to do good, you know, outside the level of like a, a community
0: group or some kind of fundraiser. Well, that was a great conversation. Thanks again to you, Casey. Thanks to Nick Clegg for this conversation and being on Decoder. Casey, you write Platformer, which is a newsletter about social networks and democracy. Do you want to tell people about it and where they can find it?
1: Yeah. And of course, I started uh, this newsletter, you know, while at The Verge full time. And every day I try to explore the collisions between these companies as they're exploring the exact kind of questions that I was talking with Nick about today. So if you want to hear more of those conversations and get caught up on all of the news that unfolds in that domain every day, uh, you can sign up at platformer.news and you can get at least one uh, column for free every week.
0: As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit us up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. Casey is at Casey Newton on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.